Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast doesn't really have a specific theme. Uh, it covers a lot of my interests, it co- covers a lot of other people's interests, it goes into philosophy, spirituality, business, uh, how to live a good life, many different things. Ultimately, I don't believe in having themes for the things that we do. We can categorize the things, and obviously we categorize things all the time, uh, but I like to keep things open-ended, a continuous process of discovering the truth as it is. Uh, and the truth is tricky because we can't really get to the truth uh, exactly because the truth is nonlinear. It is, in the words of John Verveke, combinatorially explosive. Uh, even the truth of this window that I'm looking at, the window itself, the glass that makes up the window is combinatorially explosive. The cup that holds your water is combinatorially explosive. You cannot model that cup totally in your head. You're only getting an image of it in with your eyes and your brain. That's not the actual cup itself. Uh, so this, uh, this show is a discovery of truth wherever it may appear by talking to people from various different fields. I've talked to artists, engineers, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, refugees. I've, I've just talking to anybody who has a glimpse into the truth. Uh, and through this conversation, through this mutual inquiry into what is true, what is real, hopefully we get to something that is helpful for to you. Now, we are in a time of crisis right now, uh, but it is in those times of crisis that we find our strength. And so this show hopefully will help you to find the strength that is resting, that is deep inside of you, that is part of your birthright as a human being, uh, and find that strength so that you can get through these difficult times. Also, I want to let you know that I'm offering breathwork sessions uh, every day. I've got seven sessions a day uh, and really excited to bring this to people. People have been really enjoying it and it has brought strength to people and courage. And, and that's, my, that's my goal is to help you find the courage to uh, not only survive, but to thrive in the next couple years maybe because this virus is not going away. Um, it, it, usually viruses come in waves. Uh, so this is the first wave, it will go away, and then it might come back. I'm not saying that I know for sure it will come back, but we are in this for the long haul. So this is a uh, marathon, not a sprint, uh, and I want to do everything I can to help you not only survive, but to thrive. Uh, so if you are interested in that, please find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear about what you think about this show. Uh, also, it'd be very, very kind of you to both subscribe to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, many of the major pot pl- platforms. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and give a review on iTunes. So join me for the breath work. Just send me a message on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III with your email, and I'll add you to the email list where I'm sending out emails for the schedule. Uh, hopefully see you there. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Reed Blackman. He is an ethicist and an ethics consultant uh, and also a former philosophy professor. And he focuses on the intersection between ethics, business, and technology. So welcome to the show, Reed. Yeah, thanks for having me. The biggest thing for myself is to understand what the difference is between ethics and morals. Uh, What what is that? What do you think that is? Yeah, so look, I mean, one thing you could just do is use the terms interchangeably, right? So you can just say, look, ethics, morality, you know, it all has probably to do with something like what you ought to do, how to live well, yada, yada. So let's just call, call that ethics, call it morality. 
It's all the same. That's one option. Um, that's sort of the one that I tend to lean towards. That said, there's also a fairly common usage in at least academic philosophy where morality is a slightly narrower scope than ethics. So you think about morality, think about, think about ethics. Let's start with ethics. Think about ethics more broadly as how ought you to live, what constitutes a good life, what, what should structure our relationships with other people, yada, yada. And then you think, can think of morality as a subset of ethics. So morality concerns roughly the kinds of obligations that we have towards other people, like what, what we owe to others. Mm. Um, so while there's lots of questions about you know, what makes my life go well or what makes a human life go well, you can construe that if you like as an ethical question, but not strictly a, a moral question. More a moral question might be something more like, what kinds of obligations do I have to fellow citizens or to uh, citizens of countries not my own who are not well off? What are my obligations towards, the, towards them? You might con conceive of that as, as specifically a moral question. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not so important how you define these things so long as you're clear about how you're using your terms. Seems really similar to the yamas and the niyamas in yoga, Ashtanga yoga philosophy. There's eight limbs of yoga, and then the first two are yama and niyama. I don't remember the orders, but uh, it's essential. And what you just said makes me think that it's ethics and morals. It's basically, um, and I'm forgetting what 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 exactly the yamas and niyamas are exactly. But um, it's really interesting to bring. Have you studied any what um, Eastern philosophy? I have not. No, the closest I've come is to writing a lot on role ethics. So what are the kinds of obligations or reasons we have to act uh, given the social roles we occupy, which is sort of, you know, those mm. are the kinds of questions that are discussed and answered in Confucianism. Uh, but that's, that's my closest connection to it, to mm. Eastern philosophy. Mm. And then, so what wrapped you in so intimately with uh, Western philosophy? How did you get involved in it? I mean, there's a question about one, one way of understanding that question is how do you get into philosophy? And the other is how and why Western philosophy? The answer to the Western philosophy one is easy because once I was interested in philosophy, the Western philosophy is what was available to me, right? I was in a university in, you know, upstate New York. Uh, I don't think they had anyone doing any Eastern philosophy. So the thing that came up was Western philosophy. So mm -hmm. that's why Western. Mm -hmm. um, why, why philosophy? Just because I needed, I had some questions and I wanted some answers, uh, you know. I was insanely curious, not just curious, but sort of uh, like obsessed with figuring out whether, whether ethics or morality is bullshit. Um, you know, because I, had, I, had, I entered college with a certain uh, set of ethical or moral beliefs, choose whatever term you like, both, but what constitutes a good life, yada, yada. And then I took a philosophy course that started to push on questions about the foundations of those claims. Why should you believe those claims? What's the justification? Are they... What makes you think that they're true? What, what's the evidence for those claims? And once I read some of that stuff, especially stuff by David Hume, I was like, oh shit, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. And so it seemed like, oh shit, is, is morality and ethics just about mere preferences? Like I prefer not to be murdered, but it wouldn't be wrong to do it. And you know, I prefer you don't murder, but you, know, you prefer to do it. So are we just like on a par here because I have my preferences, you have, you have yours and they're sort of, both equally respectable. Um, and I thought, that, that, there's no way that's right. I mean, the, the Holocaust is bad. <laughs> it's, it feels pretty obvious. On the other hand, I didn't know how to justify that claim, how, how it was anything more than an assertion of a preference or, or a set of desires of mine. And so when my sort of, my ethical commitments 
came up against a healthy skepticism. I didn't know what the hell to do except to keep digging deeper. And that's, so that's why philosophy. Mm, very interesting. So I got a, a few different questions from that. Um, the biggest one, I guess, is for, for myself is like, what is the point of studying something that everyone else has already studied? It, 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 like within the just explosion of information and knowledge and maybe even wisdom over the last 200 years with the enlightenment, there's just an explosion and it's, you, you can't have an expert know one entire field. And so you have to become more and more and more and more and more specialized. But then yeah. it seems like in this philosophy thing where you're look, talking about this meta stuff that is like overarching everything else and then maybe even transcending it, but it's, it seems to be interdisciplinary in nature. And so like, what is, why do you, why do you do it? Or, or like, what is the importance of studying something that's already been studying? I know you mentioned that you teach and teaching is an important part for you to learn. Like, and I guess there's something to be said about teaching other people because they don't know it yet. They're not familiar with it yet. Right. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, there's a bunch of things to say here. So look, when I, I remember when I was in, maybe I was a, I was a sophomore in college and I was in a philosophy class and the professor, this woman, Maud Marie Clark, uh, was teaching a Nietzsche seminar on the, uh, on the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. And she was talking and talking and I just thought, oh God, I just want to know the things the way that she knows them. Like I, she's just so impressive. Like she, she has a grip on these things that I clearly lack. And I, I just want to understand it. So, you know, the motivation wasn't something like, can I do something that no one else has done before? In fact, sort of quite the contrary was, can I understand what the hell people are talking about when they talk about these issues that are really important to me? And so, yeah, why study this thing that other people have studied for so long? Well, because they understand something I don't understand and I really want to understand it. Um, my motivation wasn't necessarily to some, sort of like discover something new. Um, and it wasn't to have a big impact. Everyone loves talking about impact now. I'm sort of turned off by the whole thing. Um, uh, it was just to understand like what was true and what was false and what was bullshit. Um, you know, when, when, was, when, was I, when were my ethical commitments well-grounded? Or ought they to be well-grounded? Or, I mean, could, can they be well-grounded? Or should they be, do they need to be jettisoned? And I just, I just needed to understand that stuff. Um, because it, at the time, anyway, it seemed to me utterly important that I not, if you like, move forward without understanding whether the foundations were solid. Uh, that's interesting. That, that brings up another question I don't want to get into yet, but I'm just going to make a note. Um, what is... David Hume's main message and like why, what draws you to him in particular? I mean, David Hume doesn't have a message. He's a, he was a phenomenally prolific philosopher, um, just wrote a tremendous amount. He was brilliant. Uh, the thing that drew me to David Hume was though, in my early days, I'm talking, you know, freshman in college, although the concern <laughs> lasts until today, he, there was this, this one very, very famous passage where he says something like this, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, look, I'm often reading these moral philosophers and they tell me that something is the case or they tell me something is not the case. And I'm reading along and they're saying, this is the case, this is not the case. And then all of a sudden I'm surprised to find that they've subtly transitioned to talking about what ought to be the case 
or what ought not to be the case. And I don't know how they made that transition <laughs> because the ought doesn't follow from the is. You know, there are a bunch of poor people out there, therefore you ought to help them. That doesn't follow. There are a bunch of poor people out there, so you ought to let them go, right? <laughs> Either, ni neither one of those oughts followed. So some, something else has to get in there. Um, what's, the, what's the something else? It, it looks like you can, so what David Hume was saying was something like you can, you can, if you like, pile up all the facts about the world and you won't get to any oughts. You won't get to any ethical facts, any moral facts. Where do they come from then? David Hume said, roughly, it comes from our sentiments or, our, or the way that most philosophers talk about it. Now it comes from our desires. But then it just seems, to put it in sort of contemporary parlance, really subjective. Oh, okay, so here's all the facts. You do this. You can, you know, it's a fact that they rounded up these six million people and then they killed them, blah, blah, blah. You get all the facts. Um, and now how do you get to they ought not to have done that? Is it just preference? Like I desire that people not do that sort of thing. And they say, oh, but we do desire to do it. And I say, yeah, but I'm right. But how can I say I'm right if my saying you ought not to do that is just an expression of my desire? Um, I don't seem to be correct in a way that they are incorrect. And that, that's what I wanted out of ethics. I wanted it to be you know, factual in the sense that you could just be wrong, which is to say not just morally wrong, but you can be factually incorrect about your, your ethical conclusions or your moral beliefs. Mm. And David Hume makes it very hard to see how you can get there. Interesting. Has there been anybody after David Hume has, who has even come close to contradicting that or bringing some sort of nuance back into that um, from what David Hume said? Yeah, a tremendous amount. I mean, so there's this guy, G.E. Moore, philosopher, I think he was at Oxford, maybe Cambridge, probably Oxford. Uh, in 1903, he wrote this book, Principia Ethica. It's, you take Hume, you turn him on his head, and you have G.E. Moore. It's like everything that Hume said is wrong. Um, there's facts to the matter about what's right and wrong and good and bad. Uh, and specifically, he thought they were what he called non-natural. Like, uh, goodness is a non-natural property. It's not the kind of property that, say, is investigable by the empirical sciences. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Moore wrote that in 1903, and that was in some way sort of the real birth of what's called meta-ethics. So meta-ethics is the sort of sustained, focused um, analysis or investigation as to whether ethics and morality is objective or subjective or something mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, and so you've had dozens, hundreds of philosophers writing on this um, since... G.E. Moore, and there are Humeans in the mix, that is to say, people who are deeply inspired by David Hume. Um, there are Moreans in the mix, uh, that is to say, people who are at least inspired by Moore. And then there are other kinds of people um, who hold different kinds of views about ethics and morality that, that are not Humes, they're not, they're not Hume-like and they're not Moore-like. So that said, these kinds of debates have been going on since literally, literally the beginning of philosophy. Um, but it gets the kind of focus that I'm talking about right now, starting in about 1903. Interesting. A question comes to mind about like the perennial wisdom that Algis Suxley talked about. And I forget what the, the opposite of that is. Uh, there's perennial wisdom, and I guess there's just localized temporal wisdom that's like wisdom that's helpful for today. And then there's wisdom that's always true, always useful. And a thing mm -hmm. that always confuses me 
is why does some knowledge get lost? For example, like why did for from 400 BC to 800 AD? And I guess there was a religion form that in within that time period that changed the way yeah. everything worked, but it did yeah. seem like there was a dark age where all this stuff was lost and then rediscovered. And it's like, why did that happen? Why, why is everything rediscovered? Um, uh, and then, and then have we rediscovered the stuff that will just like, you know, if I read some, uh, script found in, you know, ancient Greece or something like that, that's been lost or that hasn't been translated yet or something like that. And I think that happens more with uh, Sanskrit uh, literature, but, uh, like, is there one piece of wisdom that'll just blow my mind if I read it, that will open up a doorway that I've, that will just totally change my life? Why, why does yeah. some knowledge get lost? I mean, the short answer from my perspective, uh, that is to say, speaking from my expertise is that I don't know. I mean, that's sort of, I don't know, a sociological or an anthropological question about why do beliefs get transmitted or not? Uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't study that. I mean, I have, you know, various speculations to offer, um, you know, but I mean, I thought that you already sort of alluded to one of the, so first of all, there's not a reason, right? Why a belief or, uh, you know, some discovery doesn't get transmitted through the generations. There's lots of different reasons, I'm sure. Um, you know, all the, all the books got burned up in the fire. Uh, the church locked them away in a prison and didn't let them, you know, tell everyone his discoveries. Um, you know, whatever there's, there's, there's surely, there's surely lots of, there was some competing theory that looked more plausible at the time. So everyone bought the more plausible theory and forgot about the other theory because it seemed less plausible, but it turns out upon further investigation that the one that seemed less plausible actually is more plausible. Well, you know, right. So there's going to be lots of different histories for why certain kinds of truths get forgotten or lost or downplayed or, you know, don't spread the way we'd like them to. And especially once the other, you know, here's another just like explanation. Once people fasten on to certain beliefs, especially if those beliefs are hooked up with people's conception of ethics, morality, blah, 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 uh, they're very hard to let go. And so people tend not to believe those things that are, that are in conflict with the way they live their lives. So if you have a certain set of beliefs and you live your life a certain way, and then it turns out that there's some truth out there um, <clears throat> that were you to come to believe, you would, you would upend your life. Uh, you're sort of psychologically motivated to not to come to believe that true thing. But there are some people who are psychologically motivated to uh, uh, just shatter their brain against reality sometimes. Like, uh, sure. and, and I wonder why, well, that, that would, this seems to be the case with a lot of philosophers. And you talk about Nietzsche, because um, Nietzsche seemed like that. He seemed like he went off the deep end uh, in order to find <laughs> the truth. Like, uh, is that accurate? That he went off the deep end yeah. to find the truth. Yeah, um, it's true that he sort of um, he he totally left the what's the what's the expression? He left the left the prairie or something. I don't know. Anyway, left the compound. He he completely turned his back on what he had been raised to believe and adopted a wildly different set of beliefs. That's true. Uh, I don't think he, that was the result of his going off a cliff. At the end of his life, he did go insane. But from what I gather, that's because he contracted syphilis at some point. Um, so I don't think it was sort of like, you know, his drive to truth made him go insane. I don't think that, I don't think that happened. Interesting. And Nietzsche also was pretty skeptical about there being a drive to truth. Um, that there are other, other psychological forces at play usually. Well, and this gets into the question I've been wanting to ask for a while now is the, um, religion. Why is it so 
ingrained in us to find some sort of overarching narrative that will uh, give us redemption and, or, or faith um, and stick to that no matter what. And I mean, is that accurate that we, we stick to these things? Is faith a matter of belief? Um, and, and it just seems like there's been a lot of talk currently about how religion doesn't go away. It just gets replaced by a new thing. And our current religion is secular religion. Um, that's an argument that's made. What is, what is that importance of religion and this religious drive to someone? Um, or like, what is it? And yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, I'm going to say that I don't know. This, this strikes me as a psychological question. There's, there's, although Nietzsche had a lot to say about this sort of thing, which is something like we weren't always like this, this kind of need is the result of Christianity's influence on us, really Judaism and Christianity. So he, he, he thinks that at some point we, we came to demand a reason for our suffering and mm. as opposed to like at least his, his gloss on it is something like in the olden days, think like Homeric times, the people who lived shitty lives were just like, yeah, we're just unlucky. This sucks. Like, I wish we were the nobles and strong and powerful and beautiful and wealthy. That'd be awesome. It's just not, it's just not our lot in lives. We're like this. Um, that sucks. And that, and it ended, ends there, so to speak. Um, but then the, the, the Jewish priests and Christianity come along. So says Nietzsche and says, look, there's a reason for your suffering. Um, first, it's because the nobles are oppressing you, but ultimately it's because you've sinned before God, yada, yada. Um, and so we've been sort of trained to demand a deeper explanation or justification for our suffering. Um, and so Nietzsche thinks like that's been inculcated in us now. And religion, religion is the cause of that, cause of the void, and the, the proffered uh, solution for the void, filler. And that is really interesting, because there's another question that comes into my mind, and you might not be, uh, you might say the same thing uh, that I don't know, but in the East, it does seem like they have that same drive, but I can't parse out whether that's because of colonization or because of it's something that was there beforehand because colonization did have a yeah. huge effect on institutions and on the, the elite and the, uh, all the people who kind of created policy and created all these institutions. So there's a, there's a force there as well, but it does seem like it's a global thing to find a religion, but I guess you could go back. Oh, maybe that's why like shamans are so becoming so popular today because it's this kind of like wide scale rejection. And now we're just going to focus on what, what existed before all of the um, agricultural communities and societies and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so look, it's it's extremely difficult to figure out what is, if you like, natural versus what's the result of culture, or what's maybe put it slightly differently, what's non-cultural versus cultural. Um, I doubt that we would ever be able to figure out the answer to that, especially because, I mean, our biological constitutions, our psychological constitutions, evolved in cultures, so. I just, I just don't know that we are, we're ever going to be able to tease these, tease, tease this apart. It's, I suspect it's not even a sensical question. <laughs> this, is a, this is very much off the cuff, but it strikes me as like not obviously a sensible or sensical question because it presupposes that you could sort of tease apart what's purely biological about us and our psychologies versus what's 
culturally, I don't know. So I no, don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting, maybe even asking the question of nurture versus nature is it's kind of like what Buddha would say about certain questions. It's just like, just, it doesn't matter. There's no way you're going to get an answer to that question. Why are you focusing your time? Why are you focusing your inquiry on it? It's, you know, it's not quite that. It's not, look, we'll never know the answer. So screw it. Um, it's more like maybe we won't know the answer because we're not asking a question that make, it makes sense to, to ask. Like our, our concepts are tripping us up or our conception of the situation is tripping us up such that we're asking a question that doesn't really make any sense. Um, I wish I could give you an example of that right now, but, um, but this, this, this sort of strikes me as one. The nature versus nurture question strikes me as sort of silly in a way. It's both. Nobody thinks the entirety of your life is governed by your nature. No one thinks the entirety of your, of your life or your personality is governed by nurture. Everyone sensible thinks it's a mix. Is it 80-20? Is it 70-30? I mean, is there even a way of answering that question? Like, how are we going to like segment up your life to figure out like what's a percentage of what? Um, yeah, so what's cultural and what's biological? Uh, I mean, obviously, there are certain cultural influences on the way that we express certain biological needs, like sex, um, sleep. But, there, but you know, those examples of, of biological desires are so few. And there, we have so many desires that are not obviously just about sex and sleep that, uh, you know, mm. I don't, I'm starting to ramble here. But I just think that I'm not sure there's much sense in the question about what's what's culture and what's biology anyway this, this gets into what i wanted to talk hopefully it gets into it uh what is the importance of studying philosophy for doing better business is it possible to do better business by studying philosophy um and yeah i guess that's the question okay so so the truth so, oh, i have to shift gears now okay so so we're talking about philosophy and business so that's interesting um I was actually talking to someone, someone who's both a former student and a client of mine. And he was literally telling me this morning that he often gets asked the question, you know, he has a successful startup and people say to him, Oh man, you're killing it. Like what do you, you must've studied like business as an undergrad. And he said, no man, I studied philosophy. And you know, that's obviously surprising to people. I think a lot of people think philosophy is about like smoking weed and thinking about how small we all are. And the reason that philosophy helps him by, at least as he tells me, and, and I've told him the same thing, is that philosophy, at least as practiced in the Western Hemisphere, in, you know, so-called like R1 research universities, like so good, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote best PhD granting programs in the States and Western Europe, um, you're, you're breaking down arguments and you're looking for evidence for claims and you're calling bullshit on things and you don't assent to the conclusion until you see the clear line of evidence or argumentation in support of it. And you know how to push at things. You know where things look weak, where arguments look weak. You know how to perhaps rebuild that argument or you know when the argument is just no good. And what, a, what at least an entrepreneur does often is they're wearing a million different hats. They're trying to figure it all out. And if you've done some philosophy, what it helps you to do is sort through, first of all, just conceptually sort all those things out, just figure out, 
keep everything as it were organized in your head. Um, but then, you know, people say, oh, we should do, we should market like this, or we should market like that, or we should sell like this, or uh, we should, we should develop this product or that product. Um, a philosopher knows to say, well, why? But that's not a good reason. But here are four reasons for thinking that's not, that that argument for what you're concluding is not strong, blah, 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 right? So there's a, just a level of intense scrutiny and, and analysis that comes with philosophy that transfers to just problem solving generally. And entrepreneurs are most, you know, they spend most of their time solving problems. Hmm. Is there any issue with that mode of thinking, dissecting everything into its component parts um, and seeing whether there's evidence? Is there, is, is there something that is not necessarily beneficial about doing that all the time? And that maybe, and what is the opposite to that? What is the opposite to dissecting something? Is it, is it creating a holistic understanding? Yeah. I mean, like anything taken to an extreme is not going to be very good. So I think that kind of analysis is great. At the same time, you also need to sort of be able to see the big picture and sort of have an insight about the big picture or draw together disparate strands and see how they're actually connected in an important way. I mean, that's, that's not analysis, that's synthesis or something like that. So I'm not, uh, it's actually a really interesting question as to whether doing philosophy in those sense, in the way that I've been trained to do it helps with that. I think the answer is probably yes. Um, but yeah, so one, someone, someone once pointed out to me that one of the values that they see in, the, in, in studying the history of philosophy is that you're studying philosophers who have these massive systems. They're just, they're just system builders. Like every aspect of the philosophical realm is, is brought under a system. So their ethics, their metaphysics, their epistemology, sometimes their philosophy of language is all part of a big system, a coherent system, ideally coherent system. Hmm. Um, and when you study philosophy, what you learn is how, when you study these kinds of systems, what you learn is how to see all these different parts of a thing and how they tie together the ways in which that they're, the ways in which they're interwoven. Interesting. And so I, so I suppose that there's a way in which when you study the history of philosophy, one way of doing it is by grasping the, the, the systems of the, the so-called great philosophers and synthesizing their various ideas to see how they, they, they come under some, whatever, for instance, general principles that the philosopher upholds. Mm. That's contrasted with a lot of contemporary philosophy, which is the kind of hardcore analysis of argumentation that I was talking about earlier. How can you tell when someone's argument is not coherent? So usually arguments are coherent. I mean, it depends what you mean by coherent. If you mean by something like it, it makes some sense. They're usually on, on you know, they usually make some sense. Interesting. But there is... Here's a standard thing to do if you're a philosopher of my uh, background. You more or less break the argument down into premises and a conclusion, and then you do two kinds of things. Number one, you see whether the conclusion follows from the premises. You're going to be like, yeah, you're right that A, B, and C, but it doesn't follow from that, that D. Um, you know, A, B, and C, sure, but for all you've said, it could also follow that E or F or something like that. So that's a matter of whether the conclusion logically follows from the premises. The second thing you do is you just go premise by premise and say, and ask whether it's true or false mm. and give arguments for thinking that it's true or false. So, okay, 
you said A, B, C, therefore D. I actually agree with you that D logically follows from A, B, and C. And I agree with you that A and C are true, but I think B is false. Here's the reasons I think it's false, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And so how do you tell whether an argument is coherent or to put it in the language of a philosopher, an whether an argument is sound? You start doing the investigation. Is that the Socratic method? If not, what is the Socratic method? I think the Socratic method is different than that. The Socratic method is usually something like continuing to ask a person question, 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 getting them to, to give a, a deeper or a better answer. Um, that's, that's Socratic mm. questioning. Interesting. So that's usually directed at a person. Uh -huh. Yeah, as opposed to an argument. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I'll offer a few questions I got here. Um, yeah, whatever you want. So how do you quickly download the synthesis of a great thinker? Huh. I mean, the quicker you go, the more inaccurate it's going to be all else equal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are, there are some really good philosophers out there who do some amazing work in the history of philosophy explaining to us what the great thinkers thought. Um, so the best way to do it is not to actually, if you want to sort of get an understanding of the system, you know, like you read an introduction to a book about that philosopher by another philosopher. That's probably the easiest way. Right. So like if someone wanted to know a bunch about Hume, you know, go to one of the Hume scholars and read, read the intro to their book, mm -hmm. for instance. And this gets into something I personally have difficulty with and I've had difficulty with for a long time. You kind of pointed to your own experience when you were talking about the professor who, um, who you wanted to understand how she thought the way she did. But when I was younger, I would try reading these books. I tried reading the communist manifesto when I was 13 and it was just uh, totally like yeah. couldn't pronounce bourgeoisie or couldn't pronounce proletariat. And it was yeah. just like so aggravating. Uh, why can't you understand some things at some times, but then you can later understand them. I mean, obviously the question kind of the answer comes up to me when I'm asked that question, but like, yeah, it, what is the point of that uh, that um, blockage or the dissatisfaction or the the um, friction? I mean, look, there's probably lots of explanations, but sometimes, the, like, the, I mean, the short of it is that the shit can be really complicated, man. <laughs> like it's just so, it's just so complicated that there there are a ton of new concepts, and the concepts relate to each other in various ways. And the argumentative, there can be many argumentative moves that are being made. And it's just a lot. I mean, it takes time to, to digest these things. It's one thing to sort of, you know, it's like, it's one thing to learn the definition of a new word. It's another thing to actually be able to use the word in a sentence. And it's, it's, it's one thing to be able to use the word in a sentence when you're asked to use the word in a sentence. And it's another thing to actually be using that word on a semi-regular basis in your daily life, right? It, it just sort of takes time to, to digest and, and sort of coalesce with the background knowledge that you already have. Interesting. And when you're, reading when you're reading philosophy, it's not a single word and it's not a definition. It's oftentimes a bunch of concepts, um, and those concepts can often be new, and it's usually not one concept. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, contrastive. So it's X or Y's, you know, you'll, you'll learn like, here's one concept and here's the opposite of that. So there's conceiving of, 
there's conce there's uh, there's conceiving of moral properties as non-natural and as natural. And now we got to okay, shit. So what is it to be a natural property, and is a non-natural just the opposite of that? And okay, you know, so so you have to get the concepts down, and then you have to have some facility at using those concepts, which takes time. And then the argumentative moves can be many, and you can lose track of them. You can for you cannot understand the move, and though you haven't understood it, you're already on to the next paragraph where another move is being made. And so, you know, you just got to slow down and read it again and again. I mean, there are times when I've read something and I've had, I mean, like zero clue what the hell I just read. Zero. Like I've read it and I'm like, okay. I read words, just no idea what I'm supposed to get from them. Um, but I'll read through, say, the whole chapter or the whole article or whatever. And then I'll go back and read it a second time and something magical happens or suddenly light bulbs start going off. Hmm. And I think it's just because through that first time I was still getting, I was still getting acclimated. I was still learning the concepts and, and learning sort of like what's, okay, what's this person up to and why are they saying this? And then once you get more of an understanding of all that stuff, you can read it again and understand more and then read it a third time and then a fourth time. That's really interesting, particularly about, I just got the idea for either a business or however I'm, I want to start incorporating that into my life of like, if I read something challenging, I can then, and I just can't get it, read it a couple of times, can't understand what's going on. And then I can, in my own personal life, then I would find a Facebook group or find uh, somebody who knows about that topic and then ask them. And that's what I'm thinking about starting to do. But I wonder if there's also a business yeah. opportunity there too of, of, of um, creating uh, like breaking down all the deep philosophical works and then breaking them into segments and then getting the crowdsourced interpretation of them. I guess that I already do that with the Bible and all these other things as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's the, one of the nice things about being at a university. You can just go ask your professor what's, mm -hmm. what's going on here. <laughs> I mean, a, a, a decent philosopher will be able to tell you, all right, so look, here's what's going on here. Mm. And then, a good student can say, I still don't see why, why do you think that? Because he, because the philosopher also says this thing and that doesn't seem compatible with your interpretation of what he's saying over there. Then blah, blah, blah. And then you might be wrong and the professor might be right, but you'll have understood more about how those two parts connect in a way that you didn't before. And that gets in, into the importance of like, what is the importance of being wrong? Um, or if you don't want to answer that question, what is the role of technology in the growth of this abstract abstraction that we were talking about of these conceptual things like like we're still talking about essentially too well so sorry what was the first one what the, the importance of being wrong yeah what is the importance of being wrong in terms of understanding reality or yeah i guess understanding reality yeah i mean i'd put it slightly differently it's not important that you be wrong it's important that you understand that you might very well be wrong <laughs> um i mean i think that it's really important to be intellectually humble. That was a lesson it took me quite a while to learn. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was a relatively advanced undergraduate. Um, and I thought I was super smart. And then I transferred from a liberal arts college to a really good, um, you know, like an Ivy League school. And I took a graduate level course. And I very quickly realized I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> and just knowing how much you don't know puts you in a really good position to learn stuff. Um, now, 
it could have been the case that I had all the right answers back then, but I didn't understand why they were the right answers. <clears throat> um, and so I still needed to understand that I may very well be wrong so that I could actually do the inquiry into the foundations of my beliefs, independently of whether or not those beliefs are true or false. So it's not important that you be wrong. It's important that you recognize that you may very well be wrong and you'll have to do a bunch of work to figure out whether you are. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so for then for the last uh, few minutes, what is the role of technology in this growth of this abstract abstraction that we're talking about and that we've been talking about this essentially just like wild explosion of new concepts that we have to wrap our heads around and then not only wrap our heads around and then use it in order to communicate to other people what's going on? Yeah, it's not... Um, I think it's confusing to people generally because a bunch of new, like relatively new problems come up, say with artificial intelligence or, or augmented reality. And we have what appear to be novel ethical issues. The truth is, though, that for someone, I, mean, I, I hate to say this because it, so, it sounds so arrogant, which is so contrary to what I just talked about. But I mean, for someone who has an expertise in ethics, it's not that confusing. Um, because if you have a, a strong foundation in the background of ethics, if you're just studying ethics and philosophy for, you know, a couple of decades, then these new problems, um, are often new variations of older problems that we've been talking about for a long time. So I'll give you sort of a, a very general example. People are talking a lot about AI ethics now and everyone's wringing their hands and how do we think about this? Blah, blah, blah. This is just so problematic. And... It's sort of like, no, if you, know, if you look at the history of medical ethics or bioethics, there's a lot of work there that, just, that transfers over, that gives us, gives us at, at the very least, if not the answers to questions that we confront uh, when we talk about the ethical issues that, that say, AI or, or AR or VR give rise to, it at least gives us the conceptual resources and the background to think about those things fruitfully. <clears throat> so, for instance... Uh, there's a bunch of issues, you know, people are ringing the alarm bells around invasions of privacy from all the, the data that companies are collecting. And they're using their AIs to, 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 they're fueling their AI with that data and then that AI is then uh, inferring more data about us that we don't like or that, that's private. And people are like, oh, you know, we have to start thinking about privacy. And so we're like, yeah, we, we've been thinking about privacy for a long time. <laughs> like, <clears throat> like the healthcare community has thought about privacy a whole, a whole lot. Um, you know, you guys are talking about, oh, how does technology impact our autonomy? We need to think about this. Then you have a bunch of engineers who are all worked up about autonomy. And, and they're sort of like, uh, yeah, philosophers and ethicists have been talking about what constitutes autonomy for literally centuries. We've got lots to say on this. This is not a totally new problem for us. Um, you know, want to talk about self-determination? Let's talk about self-determination. If you want to talk about, <clears throat> instead of bodily self-determination, when you're talking about um, people's rights to their bodies, you can talk about informational self-determination when you're talking about people's data, right? And then the kinds of arguments and the concepts that come to bear in thinking about what constitutes and justifies bodily self-determination can also come to bear on how we should conceive of uh, and what justifies, if anything, a notion of the right to informational self-determination. So... If you know, if you if you know ethics, then the the things brought to us by new technologies are not nearly as baffling as a lot of people make them out to be. Uh, said that was going to be the last question, but it's not. Uh, so, 
it gets into the like why do people ignore what has come before or not familiar familiarize themselves with what has come before and then there's also this like moral panic or moral outrage or um, neuroticism that arises once people kind of like oh the world's gonna end and, and people have been saying that for a long time yeah maybe that doesn't mean they're not right but yeah what is the what is the deal with all that I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a couple things to say. Number one, some people are just non, non-culpably ignorant of philosophy. They, have, they haven't taken a philosophy course. They took one, but it was on Plato, and that's not really relevant to this stuff. Um, and so they just don't know that there's an entire field that's been dedicated to this. Uh, you know, there's been intellectual inquiry around this for thousands of years, but they just don't know. Some people are either... Some people are... Um, they're not intellectually uh, humble. They're they're arrogant, not necessarily in a sort of flagrant, obnoxious way, um, but in just sort of yeah, like I'm I'm smart. I can figure it out myself. I have thoughts on this, and it's sort of like yeah, great. You know, yeah, you're mm-hmm. you're really good at coding. You're super smart at math. You're a you know brilliant physicist. You're a whatever, uh, you know, but. You're not, that doesn't mean that you're, that you have the training and the background that you need in order to think about these things responsibly and well, um, you're going to wind up saying a bunch of things that a proper ethicist would say, no, 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 you're, you're just confused about a lot of things. Um, so there's, there's just, there's an, I think there's an intellectual arrogance by people who are smart in a particular domain, um, thinking that they're not smart in a particular domain. They're just smart full stop. And so they, they don't need anyone's help. Interesting. Okay. That, that's really cool. I feel like we could go on for hours, but um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, how my pleasure. People, how can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Oh, they can go to um, virtueconsultants.com. They can uh, find me on LinkedIn. I sporadically tweet, but it's extremely sporadic because I'm not disciplined with it at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, LinkedIn, my website, anyone wants to email me, read reid at virtueconsultants.com. Happy to hear from you. Talk. We can talk business ethics. We can talk philosophy. Whatever you like. Very cool. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be publishing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. If you did enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, many of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. And also subscribe. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Come join the conversation as we aim towards the truth. And the funny thing about truth is that you can't really put it into words. Because every time you put the truth into words, you create a linear narrative out of something that is non-linear. The truth is non-linear. It's not, it's, it's, if you really recognize the truth right now, mind wouldn't know what to do. It'd be overwhelmed by beauty and pain. It's it's something that is beyond our linguistic capability to represent. But that doesn't mean that the language isn't helpful. Language can point us in the right direction, but it's not not the truth itself. And so come join this collective inquiry into the truth. Find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, Most people don't have the ability to let go of this linguistic understanding.
understanding of the way that the world works and just aim for the truth regardless of what the language tells us. Uh, and so I think what I'm doing with this, this show is, is necessary for us because as we enter this stage of uncertainty, uh, and we are most definitely entering an age of uncertainty, and as we do, it's really, really important that we stop paying attention to what the mind is telling us all the time. It doesn't mean to say that the mind doesn't have its place. The mind obviously has its place, but it's just one of the senses. It's just one of the tools that we can use. We can use the mind. We can use the feelings. We can use our actual senses. Uh, we can check our intuition with other people because sometimes the intuition tells us the wrong thing as well. Sometimes the intuition is wrong. So it, we can't we can't rely on any one tool to get us there. So come join the show. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, uh, and come join the, this inquiry for truth. <laughs>